everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Techspansive. I am Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Radical Research. This week, we had big news from Intel, what they're calling their IDM 2.0 strategy. There's been a lot of debate around the, the chip sector, especially with Intel, if they were going to move away from their vertical integration. Ultimately, Intel is vertically integrated. They not only design chips, but they also manufacture them. And there was a lot of debate if they would move to a more fabless and or fab light model, similar to many of the other semiconductor companies like AMD, for example, that doesn't do any of the, the foundry work for their, uh, their chips. Uh, with this new IDM 2.0 strategy, Intel made it clear that they are not only sticking with their vertical, vertical integration, but doubling down on manufacturing capacity. They've announced two new fabs in their Arizona complex, total of $20 billion investment. And they also announced the launch of a new Intel Foundry service, which will essentially allow this capacity to be used to manufacturers chips designed by some of their competitors or some of their even previous clients. So for example, maybe they'll make Qualcomm chips or even Apple chips. Uh, last week, we hit on the fact that Intel came out with these uh, new commercial spots playing uh, and making fun of the the old I'm a Mac commercials. They took a I'm an Intel type approach to it. So maybe they'll dial those back as they try to uh, regain Apple as a, as a customer, not buying Intel chips though, but uh, rather making Apple design chips for them. Yeah, there's been a, a couple of things at play here. So uh, over the years, Intel has really struggled uh, getting down to newer generations of process technology. Uh, that is not the only thing that determines chip thermal efficiency, but it is uh, you know, perhaps one of the biggest uh, uh, factors, most significant factors. And while uh, much of the industry has moved to 7 nanometer or 5 nanometer chips, uh, smaller numbers are better, uh, a lot of the Intel chips have been stuck at, uh, at, at 10 nanometers, and they've been... Um, and they've been struggling to get down to seven. So uh, this is a new investment, a new new technologies, new processes that they're they're looking to invest in. And uh, of course, it certainly wasn't a uh, coincidence that Intel cited uh, Apple in in this uh, discussion. Not only would any company get a lift from the possibility of uh, doing business again, but uh, with with, uh, with Apple, but it has to be a little bit of a sore point that uh, that Intel lost uh, Apple uh, as a customer, although it was probably destined to be, uh, it was only a matter of time, really, uh, once uh, Apple started having success with its own chips in the iPhone and, um, uh, and iPad. Uh, so, uh, so what they're going to do with these foundries is uh, it's going to allow them to produce uh, their own chips uh, at these uh, smaller... Uh, on, on the smaller uh, process uh, technology. Uh, but uh, as you note, Sean, it's going to open up the market and be a new competitor for uh, other companies that uh, will uh, eventually want to take advantage of you know, what promises to be leading edge foundries. And here Intel is definitely tapping into some of the trade tensions that have been evolving over the past few years. A lot of the 
Uh, chip production today takes place in, in Asia, particularly in Taiwan, uh, TSMC being a, a very major player, uh, the player that Apple, for example, uses for uh, all of its chip production. Uh, and, uh, and, and so part of what Intel is going to build is a uh, very secure uh, pipeline supply chain in order to potentially produce silicon for the federal government use. Uh, so uh, they can be assured that you know, these chips were built in the U.S. and uh, had you know, certain security assurances so that they don't have to have any concern about uh, foreign uh, governments putting in any kind of, of backdoors. Uh, and Intel has also said that it plans to produce a similar kind of arrangement for the EU uh, as, uh, as that consortium, government consortium, uh, also has concerns about uh, sovereignty and uh, you know, potential uh, infiltration from uh, other, other governments. So, uh, so you know, really taking what had been, uh, you know, a, a, what, what, and, and also, of course, taking advantage of kind of the global uh, silicon shortage, uh, chip shortage, which is, has been uh, a challenge. But, of course, it's going to take them a little while to build these, uh, these foundries. Uh, they got incentives from Arizona. They got incentives from the Biden administration. Uh, and so uh, just really a, a great move to take advantage of the, uh, you know, the timing, uh, the, the kind of state of, of geopolitics, geopolitics at this point. One other thing worth mentioning is that until Intel can produce, uh, you know, these state-of-the-art facilities, they're going to continue to do some of their own outsourcing. Uh, so... And who knows, you know, maybe even uh, after these things are up and running, they'll continue to do some outsourcing. But, uh, but that's going to help them produce uh, chips uh, that are uh, more thermally efficient and therefore um, uh, compete with, uh, with, with ARM, uh, which, which, of course, uh, has the design for the chips that are, are in, uh, you know, almost everything <laughs> uh, except for uh, PCs, uh, most PCs. You know, they're also, it's, it's also, there are, there's even more to the story how they, they might be open to licensing the x86 architecture, which is something that they have uh, uh, not been open to before, and how these, uh, these foundries are going to produce or uh, be able to produce three different kinds of architectures, uh, x86, ARM, which I just mentioned, and something called uh, RISC-V, uh, which has been emerging as a potential competitor to ARM. Uh, as uh, folks have, uh, you know, companies have been concerned about ARM uh, possibly being purchased. Uh, you know, NVIDIA is, is pursuing that. So, so there's been uh, some momentum around that as well. So, uh, you know, it looks like, uh, you know, in, Intel had a, a fork in the road and, uh, you know, to quote the old Yogi Berra line, decided to take it. Uh, they, uh, you know, they're, they're both uh, massively uh, opening up uh, their uh, production to uh, all other kinds of chip designs, uh, as well as uh, taking measures to improve their own vertical in integration, as you say, Sean. Well, and as you pointed out, the, the importance of some of those, uh, those newer nodes and the, how they're influencing chips today is extremely important. So if you look at just the fourth quarter revenue from TSMC, you see that half of their revenue in the quarter came from 
five nanometer, which was 20%, and seven nanometer, which was 30% of their overall revenue. So the revenue is coming from those nodes. That's where some of the leading edge technology is is being produced. Um, and and there are other- And, and they, said, they said that they might even go lower than five yeah. nanometer. Yeah. So. And, and like you said, there's a lot of other dynamics at play here. Uh, TSMC is by far the, the largest foundry in the world. They've got about 56% of, of the capacity, uh, but the top five foundries have 75% of the capacity. So there is there is a desire to have more capacity globally and especially in regions. Because if you look at, at wafer capacity by region, uh, you know the, the significant portion is in Asia. North America only has about 13% of it. Europe only has about 6% of it. So you, you see a push uh, to have greater foundry capacity in both of those regions. And, and I think companies are also thinking about rather than just managing a single supply chain, they're looking at managing multiple regional supply chains. And that would mean they'd need more components to come from uh, different parts of the, the globe. And so there are, there are a lot of dynamics here. TSMC uh, has also m made announcements that they are building uh, foundry in Arizona. So Arizona is becoming a, a major hub for semiconductor production. And of course, Samsung has, uh, has a major facility in Texas. So there are other places in the U S but I think we're going to see this, this build out, um, cause it's, it's clear that the trade tensions aren't going away. And, and I think coming out of the pandemic companies are looking at different ways of, of how they want to manage their supply relationships. Yeah. Also, uh, I mean, a, a couple of uh, old uh, Intel partners and competitors were have been brought up in a lot of this analysis. We mentioned Apple, uh, Qualcomm, you know, which has been a, a bitter Intel rival for decades. Uh, also, a potential customer, uh, IBM, uh, which was also once a competitor. Uh, you know, maybe another customer. But I, I think a lot of the enthusiasm is over uh, new companies that are producing uh, silicon. You know, Apple is sort of in that space, but even since then, uh, you know, we've seen Amazon produce uh, ARM chips for, for AWS, their Gravitron chips. We, we see uh, Microsoft stepping up its uh, silicon development uh, off a Qualcomm design in, in the Surface Pro X, and, you know, they may very well continue to, to do that. Uh, as uh, you know, as may uh, any number of of companies uh, that are producing their own devices to yield just better optimization. Yeah, I, I think that um, it, you know, to your point, you do see a lot of companies moving towards customized chips, especially when it comes to cloud servers, where uh, Google and, and Amazon um, and and even Facebook are designing their own chips and then using foundries to have those produced and, and that has increased the demand for, for foundry services. So Intel's move here, will take advantage of that. So all of these companies uh, could, could become uh, key clients of, of Intel as they're designing their own chipsets. And so it, it really is a hedge against some of the, the efficiencies that are created by being vertically integrated because they're able to, to continue to serve these markets that may be wanting to design their own their own chips for cloud servers, or even we're seeing a lot of this in the AI space as well, 
or they're moving towards customized chipsets. And that's, I think, also helped contribute a little bit to some of the shortages that we're seeing uh, today. Um, there's obviously a, a pretty long lead time for chips. And so if you don't order your chips in time, then you're going to have a, a delay. And that's what the auto industry is seeing. But also as you use customized chips, those don't scale across customers. So you can't rely on the demand uh, from one customer declining while the demand from another customer is increasing because they're they're different chipsets. So you, right. you can't sell that proprietary design to somebody else. Um, and you know, going back for many decades now, semiconductor companies prefer not to build inventory because of the deflationary pressures that are so dominant in these uh, in these categories. Uh, so more to come on that front. Obviously, as as you mentioned, Ross, these are long capital projects that take years to come to uh, to fruition. Probably they're also building them uh, in in uh, Arizona because Arizona is familiar with the technology. Intel, for example, building these two fabs in a facility in a complex where they already have four fabs. So uh, they're just going to be ex expanding that complex and that probably lowers some of the regulatory hurdles that they might have to overcome if it were building, breaking ground on a totally new fab and in, in, a, in a completely new market. They also have workforce dynamics there that, uh, that benefit. Uh, moving away from chips now, we uh, have a big story this week coming out of Medium, where Medium has offered their entire editorial staff buyouts. This comes really less than a month after uh, that much of Medium staff and, and specifically their editorial staff tried to unionize. Uh, they failed to win support there. And... Um, then we saw this blog post from Ev Williams announcing that they were offering their entire staff uh, buyouts, their editorial staff buyouts, if they wanted to uh, to leave this uh, crazy ride, I believe he called it. I mean, Medium's been a, a very interesting uh, company to watch. Uh, they, they've really been through a lot of different iterations. Uh, first, as kind of a blogging platform. Uh, then they decided to launch their own publications. Uh, which actually saw some nice growth. They launched a subscription program, uh, but there were parts of it that just didn't uh, really uh, produce the, the results or the ROI that, uh, uh, that uh, had been intended. And uh, there have been reports that uh, Williams was funding a lot of the company operation out of, out of his own pocket uh, for, for some time. And, uh, you know, I, I tend to think that this was less of a, of a union response and more a response to, you know, it was very difficult for writers to uh, make money writing for Medium. So it wasn't, you know, unless you were on staff, um, you know, and, and uh, so it wasn't, you know, kind of attractive from, uh, from that perspective. Uh, and so I, I think that they're looking at this, even, even though nothing specific has been mentioned really in terms of their future direction. I, I think they're looking, they're talking about empowering independent writers. And that seems to me to be kind of code for, um, uh, for, for looking at the Substack model. Uh, they do have a huge mailing list and uh, of uh, millions, you know, and, that, and that's why uh, if you were featured on there, you got great traffic. 
but there was, uh, you know, again, no no real way to um, uh, there, there there wasn't enough being paid in that monthly subscription to really sustain folks. So, you know, we'll see if they if they go the Substack route and just allow writers to charge uh, to subscribe to blogs or newsletters or whatever flavor of of that uh, th- there is. Uh, but uh, but this is also rapidly becoming uh, a very competitive space. You know, not uh, you know we've seen Twitter purchase review. Uh, I personally think that LinkedIn uh, has a lot of potential in this space. They already support newsletters. They just haven't provided a way for people to charge for them yet, but that doesn't seem like a big leap. Uh, and uh, we've seen um, some media companies step in too, uh, Forbes, for example, launching a program to uh, allow people, they, I think they call it journalist entrepreneur, and uh, you have to uh, become a, a Forbes uh, staffer to participate in that. And there's, you know, a revenue share. Uh, a, a lot of these are targeting uh, either people who already have huge followings online uh, or who are coming from publications, um, you know, and, and want to have some measure of security while also some degree of upside. So, um, you know, I, I think they, I think they, they have an opportunity. But um, but I don't know if if you know that's uh, that's going to be enough to produce the kind of um, kind kind of uh, revenue picture that Williams is is looking for. You know, having previously sold Blogger to Google and uh, uh, and being an early investor in Twitter. And Williams in that same blog post talked about uh, Medium needing to quote experiment more efficiently than they had uh, to date, close quote, and then also talked about perhaps seeing a, a more focused, high affinity publication working as part of the medium bundle. And uh, cons- and he noted that he could see the editorial team being a great at conceiving and executing those type of, of publications. Uh, as you know, Ross, it's a highly competitive market to publish online. Uh, you know, it goes back to the really the origins of the web, where you could write what you wanted to on a GeoCities uh, website and and publish that and push that out to your followers. And ever since then, you know, companies have been struggling with creating platforms that allow individuals to express themselves while also trying to figure out how to monetize those platforms. Obviously, Facebook and and Google and others have used advertising as a key aspect of that. Uh, That hasn't appeared to be enough to really sustain uh, media online. It worked in an offline world, but doesn't seem to make the economics work in an online world. And so as a result, they've moved to subscription models. And for some of the biggest publications, that's worked quite well. New York Times, obviously, d- deriving a significant portion of their of their revenue now from uh, subscriptions, and they're able to therefore compensate their writers as a result of that. Uh, other platforms that you mentioned, Substack, is doing that and allowing writers to essentially become their own publication and allowing them to create subscription models that make them sustainable. And Medium, you know, I feel like it kind of came out of this world of we're, you know, the blogger world, to your to your point, and Williams' vision of allowing the masses to publish their thoughts online. It was a great platform early on. 
Uh, they tried to create an editorial aspect so that they could monetize that. And, and of course, you know, they limit your views for certain articles based upon your subscription level. So they're trying to create a subscription model, but it, it isn't as defined as Substack. What the beauty of a Substack model is you pay for just the subscriptions that you want, whereas Medium was a little more of a uh, pay a subscription fee and get access to all of these different things. So, some of you may want and some more you may kind of like the want. Spotify, you know, yeah, all, all yeah. you can eat buffet yeah. model, right? Yeah. All you can eat. Uh, so I think uh, all media online is struggling with this. Do we create an all-you-can-eat type subscription model, the the Spotify or the Netflix model, which has worked very well for a long time, or or do you have it more siloed? And you're seeing that same thing play out in media. We saw Disney announce just this week that they were going to raise their subscription fee to a dollar, and they've started producing a lot of original, additional original content beyond just their legacy catalog for their subscription model. So uh, I, I think this is a, you know, a, a tough challenge, especially for platforms that are publishing writers and, mm -hmm. and written content. Yeah, we've seen, uh, you know, it's kind of funny going back uh, in time a little bit uh, to your point about GeoCities and, uh, you know, let's face it, none of the publishing platforms today can even come close to the level of ugliness that uh, GeoCities was was able to uh, pioneer uh, back in the day. It was very impressive. It must have taken a lot of effort. Uh, but um, you know, Weblogs uh, Inc. Uh, was uh, another attempt to create a portfolio of you know what was then the relatively new medium of blogs. Uh, eventually, got sold to AOL, which of course eventually got sold to um, uh, a Verizon. Uh, and uh, news this week that. Uh, Verizon is going to try to lump in a lot of its uh, premium content offerings under the the Yahoo Plus uh, subscription brand. Uh, they've already launched uh, kind of a, uh, a a startup data research service under Crunchbase, uh, which which started under the the TechCrunch uh, publications, very very good resource, and um, and and the Verizon uh, sold off Huffington Post, which had been seen as the crown jewel of, uh, of that content family uh, to BuzzFeed, which promptly engaged in massive layoffs. So, um, uh, you know, again, it, it's, it's been tough. To your, to your point about this a la carte versus uh, bundle uh, question, I, I also wonder if the future for Substack is something like uh, creating mini publications or just kind of like grouping bundles or maybe writers will ask for that on their own you know they'll they'll hit a wall uh, in terms of growth and uh, and we'll say well maybe we can get to that next tier of subscribers by doing I don't know some kind of cross marketing or uh, uh, or list swaps or, or something like that um, I, I think it would be highly in Substack's interest to do so uh, because that could help writers, uh, help lock in writers today. One of the criticisms of Substack from a business perspective uh, is that, you know, unless uh, people are, go for one of these Substack pro plans where they're on the hook for essentially two years, uh, there's really nothing keeping them at, at Substack. You know, they, you own the copyright, you own the, content, you own the subscriber list, you have the billing relationship with 
Stripe. Um, I've, I've seen, I think it was um, one uh, Substack subscriber show uh, a little bit of their credit card statement uh, and showing how the publications show up independently as, as charges. There's no mention of Substack uh, in, in the billing. Uh, and so, you know, one of the questions surrounding the future of Substack is, will they be able to hold on to their stars uh, and will they be able to build that pipeline uh, or will people leave? Um, I, I've also seen at least one of the more established uh, writers on the platform who uh, it should be noted is also uh, an investor, uh, but say, you know, look, basically, can you roll all this stuff together with your, you know, with your own technology? Sure. You know, is it worth 10% of what I'm making to have someone do this for me? Yes. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but others are going to certainly do it for less, uh, which, um, uh, which Twitter is already trying with a, a 5% uh, commission. Yeah, and I, and I think it comes down to, you know, that may not be a lot, but it might be a lot for the biggest stars who who could bring on their own staff and cover sure. the cost. Millions. For, yeah. Right. Making for, millions. Yeah. For that same fee, they could hire their own staff and and go to their um so Substack could be a stepping stone between their the job they had at their previous publisher and their their own independent thing and and maybe what we do is we morph back into blogs you know we go back to blogs it seems like blogs heyday was maybe the the you know 2007 to 2009 time frame if not before and uh we've now moved to to different platforms um in some ways you know medium like you mentioned was the the revision of blogger meant to be a, a landing place for anybody who has has a voice and wants to share that voice, and uh, and also I think the benefits that they were trying to bring to market was surfacing new content, and that's one of the things that these platforms can can enable. Medium has struggled with that in in certain areas, as some of the reporting uh, noted this week. But the idea is that, you know, I, I have a blog, I don't have a lot of followers, I publish on Medium, and maybe the algorithms drive my posts to new followers who then who then start to follow me. The problem is if Medium makes me too popular and too successful, then maybe I go to Substack and, and try to monetize it more directly. So uh, a, a lot of challenges, I think, for for the entire space in the years ahead. I think maybe one reason why uh, another thing motivating medium to uh, move to these longer form pieces is that, you know, someone who's written many articles and, and blog posts, I kind of like the idea of the shorter blog post, you know, the 300 under 500 word, three, 300 word blog post. But I do think it's very difficult to extract value from that. And that's why uh, one of the reasons that the newsletters have been more successful uh, is because they give the writer almost um, pressure the writer to to make a better developed uh, argument, you know, over the course of, wow, you know, some of these are, are really long, you know, over a thousand words. Uh, you know, a lot of the medium articles were over a thousand words. Uh, and uh, look, I, you know, I tip my hat to the writers who are doing this on a, on a weekly or biweekly basis. It's, it's, it's a lot of, of work. So, 
um, of course, you know, they, des they deserve to be compensated. It reminds me of Mark Twain's famous quote, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long letter <laughs> exactly. instead. Uh, you know, maybe that's a, a little bit of what happens with some of the, the blogging. I would agree there, there can be a lot of value in short blog posts. And that's why you see some of the great newsletters, and, and I would include yours in this, Ross, your new <laughs> newsletter endeavor, uh, working on building out a, a theme, right? So it, maybe it isn't just a single story, but it's uh, several stories that tie together to, to speak about a, a broader theme. Uh, I think those are extremely popular right now. It will be interesting to see how those evolve when there is maybe not as much interest in, in the themes that are being, being covered today, how those will, will morph into new ideas. So we'll see how that changes as well. Uh, in, in our final story from the week, we have some uh, roundup of Apple news. And, and as it always relates to Apple, Google news as well. In Arizona, the Arizona Senate skipped on bill HB 2005, which would have forced Apple and Google to let apps in their app store use alternative in-app payment systems. This, of course, has been a, an ongoing battle to force Apple and, and uh, ultimately Google to accept payments from uh, alternative sources than having to run all your payments through their payment system and pay the, the associated fees. Both now, as of this week, have lowered their fees for developers. Apple was uh, first and, and then Google followed this week. Uh, so I think we'll continue to see that narrative. It will be interesting to see if any state or country really pushes this alternative in-app payment system and then forces Apple and Google ultimately to, to embrace it more globally. It will get to uh, some point where that might be hard to manage a patchwork of, of initiatives. And, uh, and if that were to happen, uh, my money would be on the, it happening in the EU. Uh, but certainly over the past uh, couple of months, we've seen uh, Australia applying a lot of pressure to uh, a couple of the big tech companies, uh, Facebook and Google. Uh, and, uh, and now, more recently, uh, Apple uh, on the issue of uh, App Store exclusivity. And Apple's response has been that there are many venues for people to reach iOS devices outside of the App Store, uh, which essentially, if you, you know, read their argument, boils down to the web. And, and there is something to that. Uh, we have seen uh, a couple of the streaming gaming services like uh, uh, GeForce Now uh, from NVIDIA and uh, Amazon's Luna and uh, probably Microsoft's uh, Xbox and Google Stadia as well uh, target the Safari browser on iPhones and iPads so that they can get onto those platforms. There, I don't think it was as much of a question about the fee, the revenue share, but more of a question around how to structure the service, where Apple really wanted uh, each game listed on the service to have its own app store listing and reviews. And, you know, that, that's just not how these <laughs> services work. Uh, so, uh, so instead, they have taken a route to the, um, uh, to the browser. Uh, and uh, have gotten pretty good results from a performance perspective. 
uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those services are on an even playing field with with those listed in uh, with, with apps listed in the app store. It turns out that the uh, web competes with everything, and so uh, <laughs> you're seeing companies now use that as a as a default alternative. That yes, we have lots of competitors, including the internet, broadly the internet competing against us. So, well, but and, and the other thing about the web on iOS devices is that Apple controls the the rendering engine. So even if you're using Chrome or Microsoft Edge on on an iPhone. What you're really using under the hood is Safari. Uh, so it's completely up to Apple in terms of what capabilities of the web are made available uh, to, to developers. And at least for now, these, uh, these third parties have been able to support what they need to uh, in, in order to make these services work. But there has, uh, there's a great article uh, in CNET a couple of months ago about this uh, debate over tying the web deeper into the hardware of the underlying platform. Uh, it's something that Microsoft and Google are supporting, but Apple is not uh, in the name of security um, as, as one of their arguments. Uh, but you could also see how it would bridge uh, some of the remaining gap between the browser and a native app. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point, Ross. Well, that's probably a great place to end this week's episode of Techspansive. Again, I am Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And, and I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks so much for listening.